From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado must figure out how to heal from a dark chapter in its history. Indian boarding schools designed to erase Native identity. I can only imagine how uncomfortable it would have been to have the superintendent and the Indian agent and an interpreter sitting out in front of your home trying to convince you to send your child away to some place that you may have never heard of. The state archaeologist just finished an investigation into schools that were as much about physical work as learning. It was expected the only way Native existence could continue was if they assimilated into white society, but not as doctors or as lawyers. It was as laborers. This is also a story of resistance, particularly for the Ute people. Every member has that moment when they decide it's time to start supporting Colorado Public Radio. Make this your moment. Call or text GIVE to 800-496-1530 and make your gift today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado was part of a concerted federal effort to try and erase indigenous cultures and identities. New details are out this week about one aspect of that campaign, so-called boarding schools for indigenous children. It's a chapter Colorado now has to reconcile with and figure out how to move forward. It's history that needs to be told. Boo Nigren is president of the Navajo Nation. Hundreds of Navajo children were taken to these institutions in Colorado. Nigren says a better grasp of history is vital to understanding the present. There's times when we fight and advocate for our communities and our nations that all we want is to be a part of a society that um, be able to take care of themselves. But in order to do that, we got to acknowledge the past. And I think that's what's Part of this investigation, this finding is that, you know what, Native people, Ute people, Navajo people have sacrificed so much through the years and the decades and the millenniums and really tried to be a part of the United States. And there's times when it's not pretty. It's always good to know that if you know your history and the, and the tough history that we both share, we should definitely be helped in various ways to move our people forward. The investigation he mentioned came out from History Colorado, and it was mandated by the state legislature. What it documents is familiar to Nigren. Throughout history, I've heard some traumatic stories. I know my grandma went out to Sherman Indian School, and I know she went out there in second grade. And even having visited that boarding school out in uh, Riverside, California, I put myself as a kid in the 1940s. Just the thought of riding a bus all the way to California and leaving your family and your relatives behind. Even as an adult, I felt very lost. And then uh, being a parent to a young two-year-old and soon to be another little girl, I just can't imagine having your kids torn away from you. And just to know that your kid never came home is is a tough thing to think about when you put yourself in their shoes. The research team was led by Colorado's state archaeologist, Holly Norton. We're going to spend today's show learning what she and her team uncovered and talking about where we go from here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Is this the first time the state of Colorado has officially acknowledged this history? 
I think this is the first time the state of Colorado has acknowledged this history in this way. There have been individual institutions and agencies who have been acknowledging this and working towards this. Uh, Fort Lewis College in particular has been working on efforts at acknowledging this history and uh, reconciling this history for their students and faculty and staff. The Department of Human Services has been reckoning with their engagement with the Teller Institute. But this legislative effort was the first time the state of Colorado moved forward in a comprehensive way, acknowledging this history and really trying to get down to the root truth of what occurred at these schools. You write that these so-called schools had an explicit purpose to destroy Native cultures, that this system was created as white people waged war on Indigenous people. You write that they were a means to an end, quote, the end being the destruction of the American Indian as a legal identity. What did you uncover about how children were placed in these schools in the first place? The way that children were placed in these schools in the time period this report really looks at, which is 1880 to 1920, was in a lot of ways this mad grab by superintendents and by Indian agents. The people who were running these schools were incentivized to have as many students as possible. That's how they were funded. That's how the federal government was measuring success. And so, you know, what we see in the historic documents are these officials are going to tribes and they are coercing families. It's a mixture of bribes and threats to try to get families to sign their children up. They're going to other schools and they're poaching children who are already students at other places. And so there's really this competition between schools to get as many students into their particular school as possible. For them, it was really a numbers game. You said a mix of bribes and coercion. What would coercion have looked like and sounded like, to the best of your knowledge? Superintendents write about how they would spend days trying to speak with families and trying to convince them this was a good idea. You know, I can only imagine how uncomfortable and awkward it would have been to have the superintendent and the Indian agent and an interpreter sitting out in front of your home for hours and hours and hours for days on end trying to convince you to send your child away to some place that you may have never heard of. That if you don't do this, perhaps your rations will be cut or other services that you deserve, uh, you know, as a human and as a member of the tribe and as someone who lives on the reservation would be cut in punishment. But if you did do this, you could potentially get other services or get other opportunities. But they realized that they really had to use a lot of force. And in sometimes that was physical force. We didn't see that as much in Colorado, at least in the records that I've seen. But other tribes had the military show up and physically remove their children. Hmm. We'll talk more about what life was like at these assimilation schools in a bit. But the state legislature commissioned this research, as we mentioned. They funded your team for a year. Uh, very plainly, Holly, what do you want lawmakers to do now? 
What I would like lawmakers to do is what they're already doing. They're grappling with this history, which is why they asked us to do this study. And lawmakers are talking with tribes, talking with agencies, talking with communities, and are formulating next steps forward in reconciliation and how we as a state move forward as a a healthy, whole society. I know there's a desire to have more of this taught in Colorado schools. Are the facts of this report something you'd like to see make it into textbooks? I think the facts of this report would be fantastic in textbooks or in curriculum. I think the question right now would be, how that occurs. And I think that it would take education experts, and that's not me, to be able to create a age-appropriate curriculum for the the different age levels that should learn this. There's a lot of opinions that this history really needs to be taught in all schools across Colorado. On Monday, Governor Jared Polis privately showed his respect at the former site of the Indian boarding school at Fort Lewis, according to his staff. He also visited the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute tribal councils related to the release of your report. The governor's office declined an interview about those discussions, and it's not clear what steps the state may take next, although Polis says he is committed to addressing the impacts of the boarding school era. Do you think the state will formally apologize to the tribes whose children were subjected to these institutions? I don't know, and I'm, I don't think that's something that I can really speak to. I do know that the governor and the lieutenant governor have taken this history very, very seriously. I think that it was huge that the governor paid his respects to the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School site on Monday. And I trust that Governor Polis will continue to take the appropriate and respectful steps in addressing this history. The campaign to eradicate indigenous identity fortunately did not succeed. How were you sure to acknowledge contemporary Native culture and identity as you wrote this report? You know, I sincerely hope I did my best in this really short time period to make sure that we were consistently engaging our tribal partners, particularly the Southern Ute Indian tribe and the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, who we have a special relationship with as our resident tribes here in Colorado. And so as I wrote this report, I kept in mind some of the concerns and questions that I heard from them about this history, how different tribes grapple with different information and making sure that we were contextualizing it and writing this in a really sensitive way. Give me an example of maybe an epiphany you had because of those conversations about the approach to this report. Yeah, I think an epiphany I had was understanding how tribes even, some tribes, right, and tribes are not a monolith. And in this case, we have what, 28 historic tribes. I think we've been in communication with 43 contemporary tribes. But I think especially when we are discussing something that happened in the past, it can be easy in mainstream society to use very blunt language. And so 
one of the things that I learned was sometimes we don't necessarily discuss things such as student deaths head on, right? We have more sensitive terminology. So um, for instance, that section of the report is children who didn't return home. And that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but for many of the um, Indigenous folks that I work with, you know, what they taught me is what that meant for them was a way to communicate, not that just these students didn't return home, but that they passed away at these schools. And so just internalizing that kind of cultural sensitivity as I tried to move forward, but also being clear on what this information meant and balancing those two things. Indeed, you've identified evidence that students died at both the Fort Lewis School and the Grand Junction School. You mentioned the Ute people, and their successful resistance stands out in your report. Assimilation schools in Colorado were primarily created for them. Uh, Would you speak to the Ute experience and how they pushed back? The Ute, especially at the end of the 19th century, were really trying to navigate a really complex situation with the federal government. Um, In some ways, they were in this really liminal space where they were not fully settled. There had been conversations about the Ute who were in Colorado joining the Ute who'd been removed to Utah. And a lot of that was unclear what their future looked like. The Ute appear to have been really resistant to allowing their children to leave their protection without having those questions answered. There was deep distrust, which is completely understandable. Given that relatively few Ute children attended the main boarding schools in Colorado, those schools had to recruit from tribes all around the area. And you talk about how they were economically driven to do so. You estimate about 1,100 students were enrolled at one time or another at the Fort Lewis School in Hesperus. Primarily, that included Navajo children. Yes. Um, What have you talked about with Navajo leadership as you've done this research? So far, we haven't had as in-depth of conversations with the Navajo leadership as we have had with the Ute leadership. We're really just beginning to establish and explore that relationship and what this means moving forward. The Navajo are not strangers to this information or um, to this history. Because they're the largest tribal nation, they have really borne the brunt of a lot of these educational policies. So, you know, I hope as we move forward to learn from and understand the Navajo perspective from their leadership and how we can start to have conversations about reconciliation, particularly on the old Fort Lewis campus. Coming up, a picture of daily life at Colorado's Indian boarding schools, which were more about labor and indoctrination than education. Our guest is state archaeologist Holly Norton. She's put together a report on these assimilation schools at the request of the legislature. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. For decades, public radio has been a reliable source for fact-based news and independent music programming but also for tote bags. If you don't have a public radio tote bag yet, or you just want another one, 
make a gift of $15 a month and our new tote bag can be yours. It's durable and spacious, features Colorado-themed graphic art, and shows off your support for the service you love. Check it out and donate at CPR.org. Tribes have long wrestled with the dehumanizing chapter of their history involving Indian boarding schools. State government, though, is still early in its reckoning. A new report led by Colorado's archaeologist at the request of the legislature is an important step. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Holly Norton. I'd like to talk more about the experience that children had at these institutions. Could you describe what life was like for them and perhaps what nuance your research has uncovered about their daily lives on these campuses? So I think their days would have been really long. When we think of education, I think we often think of the three R's, right? We think of reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that was part of it. Students were expected to learn basic academic skills, but they also were expected to learn different types of labor. There were different types of schools for both the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School and the Grand Junction Indian School. These were agricultural industrial schools, meaning that the focus for the students was really on learning agricultural labor. That meant that these students were literally farming, raising chickens, raising cattle. There was a dairy at one point on the Grand Junction campus. So these students had really long days where they were doing a lot of physical labor on top of attending what I think we could loosely call classes, where they were learning rudimentary reading and writing. Um, I characterize it in that way because I'm not convinced that these were real rigorous academic courses. I really think that, you know, these students were being more subjected to the physical labor, both because it was needed for the subsistence of these schools. These farms and gardens and and dairies allowed the students and the staff to eat. Um, They were not fully rationed by the federal government. And the Indian Commission believed that if students had to subsist on their their own labors, that they would be better at it. Um, It wasn't just agricultural work. The girls and the young women who attended these schools were being trained to be domestic laborers. It was expected that they would enter the workforce to be servants in affluent white people's houses. And so they were doing laundry for the entire schools. They were cooking, they were cleaning. Again, really hard, rough labor. I just want to say, like, the the goal clearly was assimilation, but not opportunity equal to white people in society. Absolutely. It was expected that the only way Native existence could continue was if they assimilated into white society, but not, as you say, not with opportunities, not as doctors or as lawyers or as teachers. Um, It was as laborers that they were going to be agricultural laborers. Uh, Other schools, it was, you know, industrial. It was going to work in the factories in the East. It was as domestic help. That was the extent of the expectations for these students. The language gets awfully tricky here, it seems to me, Holly Norton, because 
student, the student doesn't quite feel right when you're talking about someone who's who's doing child labor. I mean, th- so that term yes. enters the picture. My mind goes to the concept of whether this was indentured servitude. The term school, the term students, these terms fail us. I agree completely. I grappled with education, right? Like I, these kids weren't getting an education. They were being forced to participate in another system of indoctrination, right? And so, yeah, I, I agree completely that the terms fail us. I think some of the terms that were used at the time also obfuscate but are telling. A lot of the students also referred to historically as pupils also doesn't rise to the occasion. Um, Labeled as orphans, right? And labeled as people who, who didn't have a place. There was this constant trying to push them into this new space that the federal government was carving out. And, you know, the best labels they could come up with were student and pupil in schools. Your research had to rely primarily on documentation from white people who had run boarding schools rather than people who attended them. You note that undoubtedly that taints your findings. Quote, American bureaucracy always accounts for the money spent and the resources that the state hoards when really those resources came from the very people they are oppressing. And so you only ever get so close to a truth, to a history, end quote. Would would you expand on that for us? Yes. Unfortunately, what these federal officials recorded is not always what we want to know. In many ways, the children themselves were secondary to these, these schools. You know, the the apparatus of the schools themselves, the removal of children from their tribes and their families was the point. And then once these children were in the schools, there was less emphasis on them as individuals. And so we don't see the information about individual students that I think we would hope to see, you know, that would really kind of illuminate what their daily lives were like. That is, if you're going to call this education, if you're going to call these young people students, I imagine as a historian, as an archaeologist, I'm imagining you're craving a report card, a sense of progress, a sense of who is this child? What progress are they making? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was something that was really frustrating not to see metrics, right? There was nothing that ever indicated that there was any emphasis on the progress of these students. We have a lot of information from the Commission of Indian Affairs about programs and what they would expect to have been taught, but I didn't see any evidence of oversight that students were actually learning anything. Mm -hmm. That being said, you could also see occasionally that there were particular students, for whatever reason, that different teachers or superintendents or staff took under their wing and whose progress they did care about. There was one student in particular at Fort Lewis. His name was Edward Slaughter. And he came to the school as a quote unquote orphan. And, 
you know, he spent nearly a decade as a student. And then when he finished as a student, they hired him on as staff and then as faculty. And so you get glimpses like that. Occasionally, there were students whose intellect and whose personalities, you know, were valued. We don't see that with everybody. And I don't know, I can't speak to what degree that occurred, you know, and I I think that's where understanding survivors' stories and their testimonies um, and their experiences becomes really important because I don't think it was the same experience across the board for everybody. No, and I I want to make mention of one school uh, in Colorado, so at Fort Lewis, that stands out for a particularly repulsive superintendent who was accused of yes. a pattern of sexual abuse against children and staff. I, I want to wrap up on the theme, though, of perseverance. We spoke with Ernest House, a former head of the Colorado Commission on Indian Affairs, a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member, and a Fort Lewis College trustee. And he places the Assimilation School's chapter in the context of his nation's 10,000 years of existence in Colorado or more. Yeah. How do you think your research helps the state chart a better future? I think it's really important to recognize that while we're talking about boarding schools, it can't be compartmentalized and separated from federal Indian policy in general. You know, and one of the things that I I hope I was successful in pointing out is that boarding schools were related to allotment. They were related to water rights. They were related to many, many aspects of Indian policy that was established and largely implemented by the federal government. What I hope is that this research recognizes all of those different aspects and that we can start unraveling some of the harms that have been done. And we can really talk about concrete policies that we can implement as a state moving forward, ways to support education, ways to ensure that tribal people have access to land, the conversations around water, You know, I hope that informs this research, informs the policymakers and the negotiators and the other people who are having these myriad conversations. Hmm. That this is part of an ecosystem of oppression, of historic oppression. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me today and for your interest in this history and this report. Colorado State Archaeologist Holly Norton, who led a year-long investigation of Indian boarding schools here. The one known as Fort Lewis shut down in the early 1900s, and the land eventually became the first home of Fort Lewis College. That school's mission today is wholly different. Fort Lewis College is officially a Native American-serving institution, with 43% of students identifying as indigenous. Here's Vice President of Diversity Affairs, Heather Shotton. She's a citizen of the Wichita and affiliated tribes and a Kiowa and Cheyenne descendant. This is long overdue, but it's always the right time to begin healing. We have the opportunity to shape and reshape 
what an institution of higher education can do, how it can be responsible to Indigenous people, to Indigenous students, and how it can be in good relationship with place, with tribal nations, and do that important work. So we have a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous opportunity in front of us. And as Holly Norton, the state archaeologist, told us, Fort Lewis College is ahead of the state in reckoning with this past and creating a better future. A final reflection from Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren. He says the boarding school era is one piece of a long history in which indigenous people have been betrayed by the federal government and by the states. We signed treaties, we played the part, and we said that we would... uh, collaborate and we want to fight each other and we would all be successful. But on our end, it's been tough for us to actually move things forward. But then again, it's just you can't magically fix it in one generation. It's a very difficult scenario that uh, Native people have been put in. But uh, as president, I just try to be as hopeful and try to inspire that we can overcome some of the historical trauma that the nation has faced over the decades. At CPR.org, there's a list of tribes whose children were identified as attending assimilation schools in the state. Our next interview with the governor takes place next week. We'll ask him about the boarding school investigation. And what else? What would you like to know? What's concerning in your life that state government can affect? Email your questions for Governor Jared Polis to Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Please include your first and last name and your city. We also welcome your voice memos. Again, that's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. With producer Rachel Estabrook, I'm Ryan Warner on listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.